Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. Today we're going to be talking about one of the big isms. You know, you'll often meet a, a socialist, a, an anarchist, even a communist. It's very rare that you'll meet somebody who will willingly describe themselves as a fascist. So what is fascism? What are its roots? Are all fascists Nazis? Are any fascists Democrats? And are all fascists uniquely evil? Welcome to The Rest is History, the podcast that roams down the dark alleys of political history and shines a torch on the sometimes disturbing ideas that you find in the corners. I'm Dominic Sambrook and with me is Chief Liberal Elite Investigator Tom Holland. Hello, Tom. How are you? Very well, thank you, Dominic. Thanks. So, Tom, we had the most colossal postbag on fascism, as you might expect. It's a subject that basically never fails to sell books or, let's hope, podcasts. So, um, what have we found? Share some of your some of your um, some of your questions that you've dug up. Well, looking through them, um, I think that large numbers of them are saying actually, what is fascism? And yeah. uh, there's a question from Kelvin that I think uh, zooms in very well on on perhaps what, what's the core issue. Um, he, he asks, is there an actual historical definition of fascism or is it more of a I know it when I see it type of scenario? And then he adds, for instance, could retrospectively the Spartans of ancient Greece count? So I think that at the heart is, is fascism something that can be abstracted from history? Is it something yeah. that can describe um, maybe an attitude towards authoritarianism or racism or whatever that is a constant throughout history? Or is it something that is rooted in very specific cultural, political, economic circumstances? And personally, I would I would go for the latter. I don't know yeah. how, how you feel. You're the, the modern historian. What's your take on that? Uh, I absolutely would go for the latter. I would say it is. People use fascists now to mean evil, don't they? Which I think is 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 sort of wrong. I mean, I'm not saying fascists weren't evil, but I'm, but it's not, to use it as a moral shorthand, I think is wrong. I think it's, fascism was rooted in a very specific time and place in the decades after the First World War. I think the First World War was absolutely central to fascism. And, um, you know, historians, to answer Kelvin's question, historians have spent, you know, enormous amounts of time and ink debating what fascism is. And they come back to, by and large, people like Robert Paxton and Roger Griffin, these sort of landmark historians of fascism, they come back to the same things. So it, it's rooted in a nation that has a sense of victimhood and humiliation, and often through war. And it strives for a kind of national rebirth. It rejects democracy. It defines itself against communism. Um, it argues that there's a, there's room for a kind of revolutionary movement that will remake the nation and will restore its lost kind of virility and it's lost pride, um, and create new men, in fact, will create a new kind of a new kind of human being through speed and spectacle and technology and, and violence. And violence is always at the at the core of it. And you can see, I think, now maybe you'll disagree with me about this, Tom, but I think although you can see 
elements of all those things in earlier movements, and some of them are kind of timeless, the formula is very specific and is rooted in that experience of, of the First World War and the sort of sense of humiliation afterwards. Yeah, I mean, my my take on it is perhaps a, a, a kind of slightly strange one because um, I've I've never studied fascism. I never never did it at school. Never did it at university. Um, and the only time I've written about it was um, in the context of writing about Christianity. And it seems to me that fascism is the most profoundly revolutionary movement um, that Europe has witnessed because it represents um, an overturning not just of um, institutional Christian norms, as the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution did, but an attack on some of the core fundamental values of Christianity that liberal um, post-Christianity has inherited. And I would fix on on two in particular. Uh, At the heart of Christianity, as evinced by the the image of Christ on the cross, is the idea that there is a kind of a, a virtue in victimhood. That um, those who are the, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Um, the Nazis obviously do not agree with that. Neither do, do the fascists under Mussolini. Um, the other core Christian idea is that there is a universal um, uh, human dignity that all human beings are created equally in the image of God, um, and that, as Saint Paul puts it, there is no dual Greek. Now, obviously, the Nazis in particular are very, very keen on the idea that Jews and Greeks are fundamentally separate yeah. and distinct. Um, and I think that, I think that fundamentally, we, you know, we've already talked about Nazis and fascists being evil. Uh, that, of course, is essentially a kind of Christian categorization. And I think that the reason that we do that so readily is precisely the fact that the fascists and the Nazis in particular assaulted the core moral values of what uh, the, the core moral values that we still have today to the degree mm. that I think that, that to, to an extent we no longer one of the reasons that institutional Christianity has has declined so profoundly since the second world war is that in a sense the Nazis do the job for us um Hitler right. in a sense is Satan the Nazis <laughs> are the demons Auschwitz is yeah. hell and so if we want to know I mean, you know in, in previous generations if we wanted to know um what what the right thing is what is good what is morally good we would say what what did what would jesus do and do it now we tend to ask what would hitler do and do the opposite so it's become a sort of moral yardstick hasn't it but let me drag you for a second away from christianity and towards the romans which is your other one of your other big fields so the, the first fascists I mean, there's lots of questions about the origins of fascism, but the first really successful fascist party was obviously in Italy. And it was in Italy under Mussolini that you had the invention of the term fascism and, and the fascist iconography. And they were looking back straight away to the, to the Romans. And what is that? I mean, the, the Fasces, I think I'm, that's, I assume that's the right pronunciation. What's all that about? What are those things? So the, the idea of the Fasces is that if you bump their, their um, rods, birching rods, and in the Roman Republic, they are emblems of a magistrate's right to um, to beat those who oppose him. Um, and they're carried on the shoulders of officials called lictors who march around with the uh, with the magistrate. And the the symbolism of the fasces is that um, you can break one rod, but if they're bundled up, you can't. And so the appeal of that to Mussolini is evident that uh, if you can join the entire nation together, then it cannot possibly be broken. But of course, the fact that it is uh, redolent of 
ancient Rome. And for Mussolini, of course, the Roman Empire, which governs the whole Mediterranean, is um, a reminder of a kind of state of lost Italian greatness that yeah. is um, absolutely kind of fundamental to the appeal. And it's kind of the, the strangeness of it is, um, I mean, as you mentioned in your, at your opening, is that um, fascists are simultaneously drawn to the very ancient, but also to the modern. And it's that fusion of um, iconography drawn from ancient Rome with planes and cars and tanks and everything that is modern that I think is is pretty fundamental to the definition of fascism. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, uh, Prashant Rao asks this question, who was the first recorded fascist? And, and my answer to that, I mean, maybe you'll delve back into it, further back into history but my answer to that would be um Mussolini is obviously the first sort of fascist successful fascist leader he is the person who who sort of turns fascism into an international brand and who turns it into a governing creed rather than a sort of oppositional one I mean he had predecessors you'll maybe know this brilliant book The Pike by Lucy yes Cruz yes Hallett about Gabriele D'Annunzio now D'Annunzio was this poet um, but he was also a kind of playboy and a celebrity and an aviator. He had led the campaign to get Italy into the First World War. And D'Annunzio anticipated all the themes that we associate with Mussolini yeah. about speed, excitement, virility, violence, blood, a sort of rebirth of Italy, which he saw as this failing state, a new state, but a failing state through war. And I think actually before Mussolini, I think a lot of people, historians would have would buy this. D'Annunzio is the kind of John the Baptist, to use your Christian sort of uh, formula. <laughs> yes. He is John the Baptist to well, Mussolini's Messiah. And in the wake of the, the the First World War, he sets up a kind of proto-fascist state in um, Fiume, doesn't he? He does, um, in what's now Rijeka. Uh, in, yeah, in, yes, I mean, and he introduces an awful lot of what will become iconically fascist, including the Roman salute. Um, right. including the black shirts, uh, including addresses from balconies. Um, he was very keen on um, feeding castor oil to his enemies, which was something yeah, that um, Mussolini was very big on as well. Yeah. Um, so I guess, yeah, D'Annunzio is is kind of, but he he's, as you say, the kind of the John the Baptist figure. Um, but Mussolini really is the, I mean, he's the, he's the guy who blazes the path, isn't he? So, so uh, well, he is. But uh, so, Kelvin, you mentioned in Kelvin's question, Kelvin asked about the Spartans. Right. Um, maybe we're going to do this. No, I think we should do this now, actually, because it's hanging there in the air. Are these people that they look back to, is it in any way reasonable to see them as proto-fascists? Or is that merely imposing the 20th century onto the ancient world? Well, so Mussolini, looking back to Rome... I mean, that's kind of understandable. And that's something that, that Italians have done pretty much since the Roman Empire implodes. Um, for Hitler and Nazism, I guess, is kind of to a degree qualitatively different. The, the perspective that he brings to ancient history, and I think ancient history is really important to Hitler as well as to Mussolini. But it's kind of, again, fused with something that is very, very distinctively modern. And for Hitler, that is a kind of garbled sense of Darwinism and an emphasis on the idea that um, there are different races, that these races are in competition, that ultimately um, you have to be strong to prevail. And the appeal of, um, of, of Sparta, say, for Hitler is precisely that it is a model, Hitler thinks, 
of a Nordic state. So Hitler's take on the, the Greeks and the Romans is that they are Nordic. Um, the Spartans are, are blonde, are strapping. Um, <laughs> they, they had notoriously had a revolting black broth that um, Hitler thought had originally come from Schleswig-Holstein. That's mad. He, he genuinely thought this. It was absolutely fundamental to Hitler's sense of history and therefore of the future as well, that uh, the Spartans, the Athenians, the Romans in their greatness were, were, were f- from basically from Nordic stock. Um, right. and, and so when Hitler says that um, Sparta is the most transparently racist state in history, he is, of course, retrospectively claiming the Spartans for for his Nordic brand of racism. And this is also where the Jews come in, because um, what happens to Sparta, what happens to Athens, what happens to Rome, of course, they collapse. And so Hitler is obliged to explain why. And the reason he gives is that they are corrupted by the, the cosmopolitan universalism of the Jew Paul. And so there's this kind of grotesque paradox that one of the reasons that Hitler ends up targeting the Jews for genocide is that he is blaming them for Christianity and the universalism of Christianity. Well, and, yeah. and he feels that, um, you know, that when he proclaims a thousand year Reich, the only prospect of it lasting a thousand years is if it doesn't share in the fate of Greece and Rome, if it doesn't get racially corrupted and mm. therefore collapse and destroyed. Um, and it's this kind of weird fusion of, um, you know, what has been a constant throughout European history, looking back to the example of the Spartans, the Athenians, the Romans, but fused with this very distinctively modern understanding of race, of the survival of the fittest. Yeah. And of course, what, what those two extremes do is to excise Christianity, because you're looking back to the Spartans and you're looking to Darwinism. Everything in between is kind of dismissed. Well, the, one of the fascinating things about fascism, I think, is that it, uh, one of the reasons it was successful is that, like a lot of successful political creeds, it looks simultaneously backwards and forwards. So that that sort of ancient iconography and that sort of invention of an ancient history goes hand in hand, as you said earlier, with all this stuff about sort of um, planes and flight and technology, yeah. which fascism was seen to... I mean, one of the th- reasons that young people in particular were attracted to fascism in the 1920s and 30s was because it seemed cool and it was seemed modern yeah. and new. And they often talked about the old men who were running democracies. And it's that sort of um, double-facing side of fascism that makes it sort of so interesting that it's, yeah. it's you know, they're taking old myths, but they are dreaming of a new world. And I guess you would say that that's one thing it has in common with communism is that dream of the new, isn't it? That it's it's not rooted in, as it were, in the here and now. It's sort of always aspiring to this sort of utopia. But it's um, it's it's glamorous in the way that um, extremely violent films are glamorous. Um, brutality and war and violence are glamorous to people. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, the famous um, comment that um, Virginia Woolf made, who, who obviously is you know not someone you would associate with the glamour of violence. Um, but in in May 1940, when she's looking at the success of the German armies. Um, and she says that they seem so young, they seem so vigorous, they seem so uh, so alive. Yeah. And, and, and we look plodding and old. Um, and as you say, that sense that um, fascism, and I guess particularly Nazism, was kind of the future, yeah. was something that kind of hung like a shadow over defenders of liberal democracy in, in the 30s. Oh, in um, the 30s and 30s, you see that all the time, people lamenting yeah. and saying, is democracy 
you know, they don't know what we know. So they don't know yeah. that democracy will endure. They, a lot of people did think, and, and particularly before Mussolini started invading people. So in the 20s, I mean, Mussolini got a lot of praise from people on all sides of the political spectrum. He said, oh, he does a lot of public works. He's very, he's very manly fellow. A, a Churchill visited uh, Mussolini. Yeah, Churchill that, praised that, that, Mussolini. If he was Italian, he would, he would have been a fascist. I think. Absolutely. I mean, that, but that was, and that's sometimes used as a stick to beat Churchill with. That he got that wrong. But to be in Churchill's sort of slight defense, lots of people said things like that about fascism in the 1920s. I mean, uh, when the, the, the new American administration that ends up winning the war, the Roosevelt administration comes in in 1932-33, they send people to Italy to go and look at how Italians are doing public works and building roads and all this kind of stuff to look at how Italian fascism works because they think it may have some ideas that they can use in the New Deal. In America. Yeah. Um, and since then, sort of people who hate the New Deal, so very, very right wing Americans say, oh, well, it's really fascist and inspiration, which isn't true. But it's true that up to that point, fascism didn't quite, it was always still violent, of course, but didn't quite have that sort of, that sort of uniquely sort of moral taint that it was to but, get after Hitler comes to power. But I guess what fascism does still have is a kind of allure and glamour even if it's the glamour of, of evil. I mean, I think the fact that we've had so many questions on, on this oh, topic yeah, suggests that, it, you know, part of the fascination, you know, evil is kind of glamorous. Um, and so we've got two questions that I think are, are not kind of flippant. I think, I mean, I think they're actually really important. One from, I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing his or her name right, MacMath, MacMathy, um, who asks, why were shirt colours such a big deal for mid-20th century fascists? And we another question from Christian, what's with the uniforms? And actually, the uniforms yeah, are really important, aren't they? I mean, beginning with Denuncio and the black shirts. They're massively important. I mean, I think what you have to do with the uniforms is you have to see them in context. So in a world in which a lot of people are wearing uniforms, and this will sound to many people as sort of incredibly trite and um, silly thing to say. But this is a world in which, you know, thousands and thousands of youngsters every year are joining the Boy Scouts and joining groups that where you dress up in uniforms, in military type kind of costumes. So the Boy Scouts had sort of come, you know, Edwardian. So round about the same time as as people, the first sort of fascist sort of stirrings are getting underway. Then you have the First World War. So lots of people are in uniform. Uh, and then there are a lot of paramilitary movements at the end of the First World War. And there, so you, you're living in a world in which a lot of people have been wearing uniforms and, and liked wearing them. It gave them a sense of belonging and a sense of identity. And it's part of Mussolini's sort of evil genius that he pushes the uniforms. And of course, Hitler does that later on when the Nazi party starts. The party is structured in a military kind of way. And there are sort of ranks and different kinds of uniforms and all the rest of it. And, and that gives... It as sort of it anchors it in that world in a way that people understand. And of course, as you know, what's sort of hanging over this is that to a lot of people at the time, the uniforms looked cool. They wanted to wear right. them. I mean, that's right. a terrible thing to say, but it's true. And even now, you know, children, for example, have a fascination with the Nazis because they see them as they do with the forces of evil in Star Wars. They all have their ranks and they all have different helmets and they all have their different insignia. And that has a kind of weird hold over us, doesn't it? But, I mean, you, you mentioned the Boy Scouts and Baden-Powell was kind of fascinated by Hitler. Um, yeah. Pretty much up to, up, up, up to the start of the war. Um, but there is also this kind of, um, kind of mo modernism, uh, poetry, uh, 
you know, the kind of figures yeah. of, uh, that Denunzio represents. So that is also part of it. And Denunzio, who's a kind of famous dandy, um, you know, he's, he's, he's not just a poet. He looks like a poet. He does yes. kind of glamorous things in a kind of Byronic style. And so it's kind of telling, I think, that he is the guy who, who invents the black shirt because he obviously has the ascetic sense to know, I suppose, particularly in the, in the, uh, the, the Mediterranean psalm, perhaps it has a kind of particular quality of menace and glamour that uh, yeah. really makes it stand out. Just looks shabby when Oswald Mosley does it. Um, you're right. And actually, Maya asked a question about that on Twitter. She said, can you discuss why so many modernist writers were attracted to fascism and fascism's general influence on the arts? Um, and that's, that's part of the set. That's almost part of the same topic as the, as the uniforms, because you're right. It's a poet who comes up with the uniforms and, you know, modernism, literary modernism or cultural modernism was all about excitement and style and breaking with the past and creating something new. And an intolerance of what they saw as the sort of the, the fusty old men who, with all their yeah. fudges and compromises. Wing collars and umbrellas. Right, exactly, that yeah. well. So uh, if you've ever read the sort of, the, I mean, God knows who reads these things for pleasure, but the Italian futurist poets of the 1910s, their stuff is all about, you know, smashing, destroying. Venice, isn't it? Destroy yeah. Venice. The sort of the, the, the beauty of the punch all this yeah. kind of stuff that just seems now like the kind of thing a 17-year-old boy writes in his bedroom because he's never, you know, he, he doesn't know how to talk to any girls and he's feeling very miserable. That sort of, that sort of literary aesthetic explains, I think, why a lot of intelligent, otherwise intelligent people, kind of Wyndham Lewis type people, poets and stuff, flirted with fascism because they thought it was cool, exciting, radical, new, as opposed to the sort of, as you say, the sort of tweedy, yeah. wing collary sort of world of the Edwardians. And we, we must come to a break in a minute, but just to, just to add to that, another crucial figure who's not a poet but a philosopher is Nietzsche. Um, Mussolini is a great admirer of Nietzsche. Nietzsche essentially proclaims, I mean, he, he, he basically is the philosopher who dismisses Christianity as yeah. sapping, Go- innovating, get rid of it. Um, and he's, he, he, he says that with the death of God, a new order will emerge in which the blonde beast is released. It will be a, a time of great convulsions. Um, and Mussolini absolutely picks up on this. I mean, Mussolini is writing about, um, Nietzsche before the First World War. And although Nietzsche was kind of very, very hostile to German nationalism, really hostile, um, became a kind of stateless person. Even so, you can see in, in Hitler's perspective on history, his attitudes to classical antiquity, to Christianity, um, to Judaism, that there is a kind of garbled understanding of, of Nietzsche there. So I think that also is part of this kind of fascist mix. Yeah. Um, but I think on that note, we must, uh, we, m- we must go for a break. So much to talk about. We will continue. I'm going to go and iron my break. black shirt and, uh, <laughs> yeah, speak to you in a second. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend 
therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We've pressed our uniforms. We're ready to go. Um, Tom, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. And I think what we should do, Tom, is get through loads of the questions because we've got so yeah, we've many. Got so many, haven't we? I yeah. think we got through about two in the first half so, and we've got only about 500 to go. So let's see how many we can do. Chris Cope, I'm going to kick off with Chris Cope. Chris Cope says, are there any regimes today which would meet your definition of being fascist? Have you got any nominations? I don't think there are, because I think, uh, as we've been talking, I think fascism is an expression of particular uh, confluence of of circumstances that essentially was brought to an end um, with the Second World War, with the the deaths of Mussolini and and Hitler. Um, So, no, I don't think there are any. What do you think? You're maybe got a finger Uh, on the pulse of uh, contemporary politics. Of course I do. Of course I do. Um, no, probably not. I, I mean, for example, people might say Vladimir Putin is a is a fascist, but he I mean he's not a fascist. He doesn't believe in um, he doesn't have a totalitarian regime. He doesn't uh, believe in creating a new kind of society. He's an authoritarian, you know. He's an authoritarian yeah. kind of nationalist, but that's not the same as being a fascist. I, I think people often sort of muddy those those things. So I'd say I'd probably agree with you. No, 
Okay, well, there's another question here from, <laughs> definitely for you, Dominic, from Harold Wilson. Oh, um, Harold. And uh, Harold Wilson <laughs> is asking, <laughs> does Salazar and Franco fit into the same mould as Hitler or are they different in a substantive way? So again, this, this is really kind of focusing on the question is, is anyone who is a, a dictator? A um, fascist. Is, yeah. is, is, is it, it, to be a dictator and a fascist, is that synonymous? Uh, well, I knew Harold Wilson would ask a, a good question. And um, that is a great question. It's one that's very popular. So I don't think Salazar, who's Portugal, and Franco, who's Spain, are fascists. They both um, flirt with elements of fascism, but they both actually end up, particularly Salazar, suppressing their local fascist parties after sort of flirting with them. They're both authoritarians. But the big, and, and they're slightly, you know, they, they have good relationships with Mussolini and Hitler. But the big difference is Salazar and Franco just want to freeze their societies in aspic. They want to preserve the kind of very um, Catholic, conservative, landowner-dominated worlds of Port 19th century Portugal and Spain. Um, they don't want to create anything new. They're not into the technology. They don't like big meetings of people. They don't like, you know, youngsters sort of expressing themselves and excitement and speed. They want everything to be stuck. And that's the difference. They're not fascists in that sense. So they're reactionaries. Exactly. They're pure authoritarian reactionaries. And, and fascism may have reactionary elements and may do deals with reactionary people. So Hitler and Mussolini both did deals with conservative elites, but they were radicals. I mean, that's the interesting yeah. thing that Mussolini would started way on the left. He was a sort of radical socialist who then basically rebranded himself. But that's the great theme of the, um, the John Lukacs book on the, the duel about Hitler and Churchill that Ch Churchill is a reactionary. Churchill is a kind of embodiment of an order that yeah. seems antiquated compared to Hitler, who is absolutely seems, you know, in the summer of 1940 to be the embodiment of the future. And I, you know, I really do think that Hitler is the most revolutionary figure in European yeah. history. I think he, he pushes, you know, he tramples down more that Europeans over the course of the past thousand years have taken for granted than any other figure in European history. Whereas, as you say, uh, you know, Franco is, I mean, he's, he makes the Virgin Mary a, a kind of a, a, an official in his regime, doesn't he? I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the interesting thing about Salazar. I mean, if you look at Salazar and Franco, Salazar was a, um, an economics professor, very highly respected economics professor in Portugal. Franco was a general in the Spanish army. So they're both, you know, by their own lights, successful people. Mussolini, as Churchill was, of course, you know, um, descended from an aristocratic family, very successful politician. So they've got a stake in the system. Mussolini and Hitler were both outsiders. I mean, Hitler was complete and utter nobody and a failure. So he, of course, he wants to smash everything and revolutionize everything because to him, the old world is associated with failure and misery and loneliness and all these kinds of things. And that's why his regime has an appeal to people who, who share that, that view. And his, their genius of both Mussolini and Hitler is to win all those people who are kind of losers, if you like, but also to win over and to do deals with the people who already have a stake, the landowners okay. and stuff. Can, can I follow that up with a question from yeah, Johnny DeLay, which I, I do not feel qualified to answer, but you, I'm sure, do. Um, and he asks, was fascism a revolution of the middle class? I think there's probably a lot of truth in that. So fascism often appeals to people who are kind of lower middle class or very upper working class, they're sort of respectable type people. And it's basically an antidote to communism. So that's something we haven't really talked about, Tom, is how much fascism is created as a kind of mirror image of communism. No communism, I think, no fascism. So people 
are drawn, the societies in which people are drawn to fascism tend to be ones where people are very, very worried about a red revolution. And that's obviously but, one reason why it starts in the 20s, after the Russian Revolution. But also, is it, I mean, it, it, both, both emerge from um, a, a climate of violence in which it's yeah. taken for granted that, you, um, that opportunities for settling differences through democratic means, um, through liberal means, are, are, are simply not there. And so yeah. if you, um, you know, if you're, if you're a communist beating up a fascist and if you're a fascist beating up a communist, in a sense, you, you have a kind of um, mutual relationship there because yeah. both of you are serving to, to rot the foundations of the liberal order that um, otherwise would, would regard both of you as the enemy. So there is a kind of... Um, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. They're, they're, you're both playing the same game, aren't you? You want to smash the system, yeah, and and and, and you you hate all the sort of the liberal politicians who are compromising and making coalitions and all this sort of stuff. And actually, the that's what that the, Hitler comes to power in part, I think, because the depression drives more and more people towards the extremes. So they think, well, the middle ground has failed. I have to choose one of these two alternatives, and there are more people who will choose Nazism than there are communism. Right. Okay. So let's, um, let's follow up that with a question from Michael Rush, who asks, um, why do we see fascism as the worst political movement in history? But communism is always seen as a noble cause, even though it has killed a hundred million. Is it because we think in Western thoughts and as communism didn't take over the West like it did Eastern Europe? It's better. Well, uh, it won't surprise you to hear that again. I think this is to be explained by the Christian context. Because um, fascism, as I said, is, I think, more profoundly revolutionary than communism, because communism, um, although it overturns uh, kings and churches and so on, it does so for reasons that goes with the grain of Christian history, the conviction that um, the poor shall inherit the earth, that the first shall be last, that um, at the end of days, uh, a new Jerusalem will descend on the earth. And the workers' paradise is a kind of essentially a riff on utopianism that we see throughout the course of Christian history, whereas fascism overtly goes against that. Fascism says that the weak should essentially be crushed and that racism is a moral good. And we find that profoundly offensive in a way that we tend not to find communism. You know, you know Tom, I, I, I sometimes shake my head and roll my eyes at your Christian stuff, but I, I actually buy that. I think that's a really good... I, I, I hope they cut this out, but I... <laughs> I actually <laughs> I, think that's I, a very I, I good argument. Because it's obvious it <laughs> that, that sort of well-meaning kind of, for want to, to use a sort of Daily Mailish word, bien pensant people, um, sort of wince at anti-communism, don't they? They think, oh, well, communism wasn't so bad. They did. They built nice nursery schools or, you know, there's, there's a sort of... yes. Yes, that sort of utopianism uh, plays well, doesn't it? Yeah, there's there's a kind of unspoken feeling that 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 killing ten million people, you know, in the cause of establishing a workers' paradise, is less bad than killing ten million people because you're a racist. Yeah, I think, I that's think that right. is fundamentally the idea, I mean, and I think also that the idea is is pretty strong that punching a Nazi in the face is better than a Nazi punching uh, an anti-fascist protester in the face. Yeah, I mean, you uh, see that both all the time, violent, don't you? But both are violent, you, but but one form of violence is is morally better than the other. You see that on Twitter all the time, don't you? People say, "Oh, you should you should punch Nazis, or you will only defeat fascists by sort of confronting them," and all this sort of. There, there are there is a slight element, I think, of double standards. One other thing I'd add there, actually, he asked about Eastern Europe and Western Europe. 
and I think Michael Rush, and I think that sorry, it's actually Michelle Rush. Um, oh, Michelle, we, unless we've got a unless we've got a type um, yes. uh, but Michelle or Michael, I think is right that um, in Eastern Europe it is remembered a bit differently. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been ever been to these sort of museums that you'll see in the Baltic states or in Hungary or in the Czech Republic, where they'll often treat the occupations by the Nazis and the communists sort of side by side, and it's you know you, you, you get a sense of them seeing the two things as completely equivalent. Um, and I can actually remember being in, uh, on holiday in Bulgaria and a man selling, having a big tray in a, at a, at a, in this sort of village, you had this big tray full of, um, communist memorabilia, you know, badges. And sort of my friend and I stopped and were looking at all this sort of stuff. And then he said, Oh, you're English. I have a, have a special tray. And he got out his special tray and that was full of like SS memorabilia. <laughs> and, uh, and we were sort of, and at that, you see, we were shocked. I mean, like, oh, that's terrible. He's got all this SS memorabilia. We were just looking at the KGB stuff as though, and of course, at that point, point I thought this, that's so interesting that that's our instinctive reaction that the KGB stuff you can sort of engage in ironically as a, as a Brit in the 1990s, but that the, the SS stuff is, you can't, it's beyond the pale. It's unacceptable. And, and I guess we do have a kind of double standard in Britain that people might not have if they had lived through, you know, under the Iron Curtain. Right. Well, on, on the top, again, going with the theme of communism and, and fascism, here's one from Jim Longhurst, who asks, um, here's one to get you cancelled before January <laughs> is through. Um, it's 1930. Would you rather live in fascist Italy or Soviet Russia? Uh, I'm going to broaden that out. Would you rather live in fascist Italy um democratic as it is then German, Weimar Germany or Soviet Russia? Whose oh history would you want to live through in the 30s? I mean, I suppose uh, it depends, you know, are, are you a, a Jew? Yeah, are this you, is really the... Are kind, you this a is, member of the bourgeoisie? Um, this is sort of a kind, mean, uh, David Starkey moment, isn't it? Um, I think... Uh, it's got to be fascist Italy, hasn't it? So the, I was going to say, yeah, the, I, I'm sort of... It, it clearly is. The least murderous of those societies is fascist Italy. Um, not least because Mussolini was quite incompetent. Um, so assuming that you're sort of in the middle of the, in, in, in the sort of middle of the social spectrum, you're probably less likely to be killed in, in fascist Italy. Um, that's a terrible thing to say, but the Soviet Russia, I mean, of course, the more, the more keen and eager a member of the party you are, the more likely yeah. it is that Stalin's going to yeah. kill you. So I don't yeah. think Soviet Russia is a bundle of laughs. But also you've got, you've got, you've, you've got the war coming up. And terrible yeah. though Italy's experience of the war was, I, I guess it's not as bad as the Soviet Germany's or, or Russia's or yeah. Germany. So, um, yeah, I, I go on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's yeah. quite a sort of miserable question, isn't it? But, um, yeah, glad I wasn't born in any of them. Um, do we have another question? Yeah, let's, uh, so Peter Harpley, um, I'm just looking down the same page actually, but Peter Harpley's got a good question about Napoleon. Um, so there's lots of parallels between Hitler and Stalin. And he says, oh, is there a parallel as well between Hitler and Napoleon? Hubris brought them down. Of course, they're both world conquerors. They both um, devise new systems. They redraw boundaries. Do you think there's any comparison there, Tom? They both failed to conquer Britain. They did. And both went to Russia, um, notoriously. Yeah. Um, so what do you think? Napoleon? Uh, no, fascist? no, 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 no. I, I, I don't. I like to uniform. To, to reiterate, I think, I think that fascism is bred of very specific circumstances. And so I think that to associate fascism with just, um, conquering Europe, say, or, yeah. um, having, uh, fast or whatever is, is inadequate. Clearly, 
uh, Hitler and Mussolini draw on elements from history to spice up their look, their brand, their image. Um, but at the same time, they are inimitably 20th century. They could only have existed in the 20th century because they, you know, Mussolini is all about planes and yeah. cars and fascism. Hitler, Hitler's brand of fascism would be unthinkable, I think, without Darwinism. So let me uh, challenge that, or at least allow Anders Newgard to challenge it. Uh, he says there seem to be two ways of discussing fascism. One is one is your way, Tom, and anything my way, yeah. which is um, historically based. And he gives the example of uh, the historian Richard Evans wrote an article in the New Statesman uh, the other week about whether a well-known uh, current political figure was a fascist. And he said, no, because it's all about World War One. And he said, the other way of thinking about fascism is about a culture and a temperament. So he gives the example, Umberto Eco talked about ur fascism. So there's a kind of violence and a kind of, and all those things. I mean, you can see that in earlier periods, can't you? Fascist kind, type, people with a fascist yeah. mentality. Well, I, did, I mean, I don't think that it's, um, it, it's a surprise to say that in the past there have been leaders who have put a value on violence and who have launched wars of conquest and who have disliked um, other groups of people. But I think it's the... I think I think particularly with uh, with German fascism, it's the way that this is kind of presented as a pseudoscience. So right. um, the idea, so, so Hitler is, um, you know, he, he he talks about how um, apes massacre um, elements that are alien to their community, and he says, well, if apes do this, then obviously this is what nature wants humans to do. And, and it's a crucial part of of um, his perspective, of Himmler's perspective, that human dignity is a Jewish myth. Mm. There is there is no such thing that he, that that human beings are a part of nature, like every other animal, and that the law of nature is the survival of the fittest, and that if you don't destroy your enemies, then your enemies will destroy you. And it's that distinctively kind of cod Darwinian perspective that is imposed on it that I think gives to um, particularly German fascism its distinctive quality. And I think without that, it's, it's not fascism. Okay, but let me ask you a question from Roland Miners. So Roland Miners wants to know about the Romans, and he says, how fascist were the Romans? Now, you've already said, you know, it's a distinctive movement, early 20th century. And yet at the same time, you say, uh, one of the things that's distinctive about it is, is its rejection of Christianity, which, so I'm wondering whether... Um, to pick up Roland's question, you think that, in a way, fascism is turning the clock back to this pre whether you can see them, the Romans and the fascists as bookends, and Christianity is in the middle, and, and there's a continuity there. That is how Mussolini and Hitler want to see it. And what again, what Hitler is doing to the Romans is he is racialising them. And he's doing what people always do, which is to take their own perspectives, their own assumptions and project them back onto the past. So Hitler's interpretation of the Romans is that the um, the ruling classes in ancient Rome, in the Republic, the uh, the patricians, the aristocracy, the Senate are of Nordic stock, that they yeah. are blonde and that the plebeian masses, the mob are are not are are inferior, are kind of shot through with um, Jewish and African uh, racial characteristics and therefore Hitler says that they are inferior um, and Rome is great and is able to conquer the Mediterranean while it is led by blonde Aryans and 
the effect of conquering the Mediterranean is that this Nordic stock in, in Rome, as in Greece, gets diluted by inferior yeah. elements. And that is what culminates in the collapse of the Roman Empire. And, you know, this is ho- this is ahistorical and it's ascientific, but it is a kind of way of understanding the world that is unthinkable without the, the legacy of Darwinian science. And yet, Tom, is the not okay? I mean, this is an immensely frivolous question, which to which I'm, you know, I'm no stranger to frivolous comments. Let imagine that you took a Roman from the first century AD or something, and you dropped them in the 1930s. Is it not the case that they would look at Mussolini's Italy or later on Hitler's Germany and think of them as more sane, well-ordered, recognisable societies than what they would surely see as the sort of anarchic? confusion woolly confusion of liberal democratic britain and france well they they would obviously recognize um symbols and architectural styles because both mussolini and, and hitler are drawing on them um and, and that's like the cult the of violence. you know it's easy for, it, yes it's so it's easy for, for mussolini because he's italian so this is yeah part of the kind of the culture for hitler rome is the great archetype you know he goes to paris and he says it's okay but it's not as good as rome rome <laughs> is rome is the yeah. you know, that's what he's that's what, what he wants to, to build when the Nazis win the war. He wants to build a city that will very de- consciously and deliberately put Rome, ancient Rome, in the shade. Um, but he, I think, yes, I mean, there's a, the, the, the sense that the Romans are governed by a, a pre-Christian, as Hitler would frame it, a pre-Jewish sense of morality is obviously very important. And um, it's not just the Nazis who draw that equation. So Seaman Vale famously did this as well. I mean, she she said that um, that two thousand years ago, it's not the it's not the, the ancient Germans who are like the Nazis; it's the Romans. And yeah. so she does kind of recognise that. And I think there's a, there's an element that um, the kind of the, the the readiness of the Romans to go to war is and and to celebrate war is yeah. something that that Hitler and Mussolini are both kind of attracted to but it's an entirely different moral universe it's i mean it's it's, it's incomprehensibly different okay. um and just to kind of uh, to you know to take a few symbols from ancient rome here and a, a, a few kind of emblems from sparta there doesn't mean that you are recreating the ancient world fascism is a very very modern ideology okay i buy that um easy question for you smc was oliver cromwell a fascist no <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd agree with that. I think that's pretty uh how about a more difficult one? So um uh, well I think it's time for one for you, isn't it? Okay, well ask you what's no what's what's a difficult question you've come up, but you can you can put it to yourself. Uh <laughs> so it's Rebecca Redeal, who is historian oh, yes. herself. Yes. And she yes. says um I, I don't know whether I should take this as a personal insult. Do his, does history and do historians enable fascism? So I guess it's you know does a sense of history, you know, do, do historians make fascism possible through their myth-making and all the rest of it? Yes. Uh, fascism, again, is unthinkable without a sense of history. Yeah. You need the backstory, don't you? Whether it's it's Mussolini's sense that um, his Italy is the inheritor of ancient Rome or Hitler's sense that there's... Um, the history of, of of Nordic supremacy is written in the in the pages of the history book. Um, I, I think that um, an enormous number of historians, particularly in the Third Reich, were suborned by that. Um, yeah. And you know, it wasn't just that they were kind of 
uh, paying lip service to this um, theory, this understanding of history as a way of keeping their jobs. I mean, they they enthusiastically collaborated with it. I, I, I agree completely. And I think actually one of my more sort of heretical ideas that sometimes annoys people is I people often say, well, it's very important. We, we touched on this in the lessons of history. It's terribly important that we learn the lessons of history and we study history as much as possible because it'll mean we're all very kind to each other. And, and, and I think often people who know a lot about history <laughs> To use it as an excuse to kill each other. Sometimes the more you know, the more you remember the past, the more the past becomes a prison and an ex- and a sort of justification for violence. I mean, we can see in everywhere in the world societies where people remember history too much, and in a sense, and they they use it as a you know they're imprisoned by it, and history becomes um, the sort of justification for for slaughter. Absolutely. And I think the sense that, um, you know, history is a nightmare from which we're struggling to wake up is the yeah. counterpoint to the idea that history um, sheds a light and enables us to understand the present and the future better. Um, I think that that we have, uh, <laughs> we've covered enough there. Well, not um, least because we've I, talked to us, our listeners away from the podcast by telling them that if they listen too much, they're <laughs> butchering their neighbours. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to end on a triumphant note. Um, because there's, there was one tweet from uh, Dr. Esther O'Reilly who said, I dare you to do the whole episode without mentioning Trump. Damn, <laughs> we just mentioned him. <laughs> I thought we'd done it. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> well, that probably serves us right. If we're going to throw around words like fascism, we're bound to get an enormous post bag and we're bound to get caught out by our answers to the questions. Anyway, thank you so much for all your tweets. I'm sorry we couldn't get through them all. Now, this Thursday, we have a very exciting podcast. It's all about the North-South divide in Britain, tea or dinner, bath or bath. And we have a brilliant guest, uh, Dan Jackson, um, who wrote The Definitive History of Northumbria. So don't miss that. It's fascinating and it is fun in a way that fascism will never be. So bye for now. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Dot com.